All right, so we're in part three of a series called Starting Point, and the essence of this series is very simple. Um, it's what does it look like to come to an adult starting point in faith? What does it look like to essentially hit the reset button as it relates to your faith? And the reason that that's significant for many of us is because for many of us, we were raised in, in, in families or in communities of faith. That is, for many of us, you were given a faith as you were growing up. And that might have been a Christian faith, that might have been a Jewish faith, that might have been just any kind of other faiths around. But many of us, as we were raised, were handed a faith. And what happens for many people who are raised in families of faith is that somewhere along the way, the faith that you were given as a child doesn't meet with the rigors and the experiences of the real world. And so for many of us, we walk away from our faith. And perhaps for you, you weren't given a faith as a child. You weren't raised in a family of faith. And consequently, you kind of took what you heard from different families or different religious leaders or, you know, YouTube generation, you know, what you heard on a guy from YouTube. And so you pieced together for you what made sense about God and religion. You kind of pieced together and formed your own faith. And so the idea behind this is wherever you are, And no matter how you were raised, at some point, we become free-thinking people. We become logical, reasonable, reason through the way, reason through the world. Some of us, you know, a little bit too much emotional through the world. But, you know, we kind of start to come to some of our own conclusions. And as you do, one of the questions that comes up, oftentimes, especially when you go through transitions in life, when you go from high school to college, college to job, first job to second job, you know, job to marriage, marriage to kids, whenever you hit especially critical transitions in life, oftentimes it creates kind of a breeding ground to either re-examine faith or to look at faith for the fir- very first time. And so the idea is, if you are new to faith, or you are investigating faith or re-investigating faith, what does it look like to come to an adult starting point in faith because, as you've probably experienced, there are about a thousand different things that you can think of as it relates to faith. There are a ton, especially as the Christian faith, there's a ton of different stories in the Bible. There's all the stuff, and you know, a literal seven day. There's all the stuff that, you know, God flooded the earth and that there was this guy in a boat and we talked less last week, just, you know, how did they even, how did the two animals come two by two? You know, did the squirrels come at the same time just... You know, or did like, you know, did one come and then the other come? Were they married before they came as squirrels? Do squirrels marry? You know, there's a thousand questions. And then there's this guy who got swallowed by a whale at one point. And we're like, what in the world is that? And then he got spit up and he was still able to go prophesy. And somehow that was transformative in his life. That just kind of makes no sense. But all in all, as you think about faith and then, you know, you go forward there's this guy who claimed to be the son of God. There's this guy who claimed to perform miracles and claimed just some audacious claims and they called him Jesus. And to stake your entire life to and stake your entire worldview around this guy just seems a little bit far-fetched sometimes as an adult. So what does it look like for you or for many of us? What does it look like for someone that you know and love and care about, perhaps in your family, maybe in your class, maybe that goes to work with you, maybe that lives in your neighborhood? What does it look like for you, for the people that you love who are wrestling with this idea of faith? As an adult, to think there's a thousand things, there's so many different stories, and oftentimes it feels like the old adage says, you know, you're trying to eat an elephant, and you're trying to eat it one bite at a time, but the question is, so where is the first bite as it relates to faith? So what we're doing is essentially saying, hey, restart button. This is what we think is the irreducible minimum or the irreducible minimums as it relates to your and to my faith. Now... Week one, to kind of 
give, give you a little background because this is a unique series in the sense that it builds on itself. So if you ever want to go back and listen and, you know, kind of catch up, we're all at downtowncommunitychurch.com. Again, we're super trendy, so we have an app. You can just download DCC Tally, any app store, and you can, you know, listen to me as I stream into your vocal, you know, your eardrums. But this whole series builds on each other. And the week, week one, we talked about simply that the starting point, the very first starting point, the cornerstone for our faith, faith is simple. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Because in the idea of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, nobody debates that he was a person. Nobody debates that he did some type of miracles. Very few people debate, you know, if he had, you know, very wisdom-filled teachings. Very few people debate if he died on a Roman cross. But where it hits the road, where the intersection of the question of faith begins, is did he come back from the dead? Because if he came back from the dead, then perhaps we should listen to him. Week two, we talked about this. For many of us, the obstacle to faith isn't a theological reason. It's not a doctrinal reason. For many of us, it's a convenience reason. It's that we don't have a theological reason, a hindrance towards faith. It's that I know if I got serious about my faith, there are things in my life that perhaps I would need to change. And for many of us, the reality is, is the rules... And the religious framework that seems so constrictive keeps us from really exploring the idea of faith. But huge idea, in fact, for some of you, maybe you're a Christian and you never knew this. That the reason we follow the rules that Jesus set is not to try to please God. It's not because we think if we obey all the rules and do the right things that we ought to do and don't do the things that we know we ought not do, then God's going to be happy with us. It's the reality that God will never be more happy with us than he was with us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. But the reason we listen to God, the reason we obey God is simple. It's not to please him. It's because we believe him. We believe when he says to order your relationships this way. That's a better way to order your relations. We believe when he says that you ought to be generous. When you're generous, it unlocks, it unlocks and unleashes this place in your heart to where you realize that everything that you have isn't for your consumption. The reason we trust God, the reason we believe God, the reason we do what God said is not to please him. It's to believe him. Now, all that to say, this morning, I'm going to try to answer for us what is the central question of all of religion. At least I'm going to give you the Christian answer for what is the central question in all of religion. So no matter what religion you choose, you know, whether you're doing you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, you know, Judaism, Christianity, they all aim to Sikhism, you know, whatever religion that you look for, they all aim to answer this one simple question. How do you find yourself in God's good graces? How do you find yourself in God's good graces. How do you, as an adult, knowing that the reality of the decisions and the consequences of your life is that if God is holy and God is perfect and perfect and God is pure, that I am not holy and I am not perfect and I am not pure because I know I wear a white shirt and we just dedicated my kids so I look really holy today, you know? But truthfully, I'm not that holy. In fact, if you have a question, just go ask my wife. In fact, if you have a real question, go ask my dad, you know? He'll be happy to tell you anything and everything that I've done wrong. No filter on the fella. But seriously, how do I find myself in God's good 
gracious. In light of all the things that I've done wrong and a lot of the times that I know that I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyways, and I know I should have, but I did, how do I find myself in God's good graces? And this is the question that no matter what religion you've looked for, this is the question that all of religion seeks to answer, seeks to clarify, and seeks to find. And whether that, in that you find salvation, in that you find nirvana, in that you find peace, in that you find heaven. All religion seeks to ask this question. Now, what's interesting is that in the Bible, there was a fellow named Abraham who began to unfold the framework that would become the answer to how God plans and how God intends to help people to find peace with God and to help people to at some point in their life and hopefully early on in their life find themselves in God's good graces. Now, the interesting part about this whole thing is Abraham himself, three of the four major religions in the world, look to Abraham. In fact, they look to this specific story as a foundational, if not the foundational piece in their religion, as their founding father. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all claim Abraham. In fact, in a second, we're going to read some claims in Genesis chapter 12 that, that, that all the people of the Islamic faith would look and say, Abraham's our fellow, that's our root. All the people of the Jewish faith, faith would look and say, Abraham, that's our fellow. And all the people of the Christian faith would all see Abraham and, and that's our fellow. And from Abraham, all of them split, but all of them claim Abraham as their or one of their founding fathers. And in this story, what we're going to discover is God set from the get-go how people would find themselves in a right relationship with God. Although, each religion has its own way of messing it up. Christians included. So, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to go through this decently quick. So chapters 1 through 11 are, are a lot of background, a lot of God starting everything out and getting everything rolling. And in chapter 12, we got to this, get to this guy named Abraham who would someday be Father Abraham. And Father Abraham had many, and many had, and I am, and so are. See, now you guys are the church folk, all right? So you're the ones who were raised in faith and all that kind of stuff. So this is Father Abraham. So this is the beginning of Father Abraham. Now, now what's interesting is before this, we don't have a lot of context behind, behind who, the guy who we're reading, who's Abraham, Abram, who would become later on Abraham. And if you ever read the Bible, it's terribly confusing because God oftentimes renames people. And you're reading one guy, one guy, one guy, and then you miss a sentence where he renames them. And then it's this guy, this guy, this guy. And you're like, Abraham, I thought it was Abram. I get this. This is two different guys. What in the world's going on? So before Abraham becomes Abraham, he's Abram. And we don't frankly know a ton about Abram before God shows up and calls Abram. But God makes Abram a promise at this time. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now I didn't describe exactly how and where and when and all that. He says, I'm just going I'm I'm to show you. And he makes some promises to Abraham or Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, here's what's interesting, regardless of what you believe about God. We've seen this happen. What's interesting, legit 
thousands of years ago, regardless if you think it's through the Islamic faith, through the Christian faith, through the Jewish faith, we have seen this happen. In fact, we know just through history that Abraham, or Abram would turn into Abraham, Abraham would have sons, his sons would be enslaved in Egypt, they would be eventually freed in Egypt, and they would be the nation of Israel. And God, in fact, made this guy named Abram, who was old at this point, a great nation. The second promise, he says, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be blessed. He says, okay, so Abraham, here's your promise number two. I'm going to make your name great, that everybody's going to know about you. Now, raise your hand if before this sermon you had heard the name Father Abraham or perhaps just Abraham. All right, so on the count of three, so no one feels weird about it, you know, we're going to raise our hand. So if you've heard of Father Abram or Abraham before you walked in the door today, well, I want you to raise your hand. Ready? One, two, three. Look at that. Look at that. Now, isn't that that interesting? That thousands of years before, God made this promise. Through antiquity, this document was preserved. And here we are, thousands of years later, in a little parking lot in some random lean-to, you know, in Tallahassee, Florida. And you know of Father Abraham. In fact, you not only know him, you know his song. God says this is the third thing. He says that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and dishonor those who, dis- who, who I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. No. This is where all the religions would say, that's us. All the people who are Jewish, that's us. All the people of Islamic faith, that's us. All the people of Christian faith, that's us. And no matter who you are, again, what's interesting is everyone would look back and say, that is us. Now, from this point, a couple things are going to happen in the life of Abraham. Some time's going to go by, and Abraham's getting old. And so as Abraham begins to get old, he has this promise that God has given him. He has this promise that I'm going to make you a great nation, that people are going to be blessed to you, that I'm going to make you this incredible family. But the problem is, is Abraham has no descendants. There is no one in Abraham's line. There is no family. There are no children. There is no baby dedication in the house of Abraham or Abram going on. And so as Abram looks at this in in chapter 15, he starts to get a little panicky. You can read it along with me. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, there's some some stuff that had happened between chapter 12 and 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God talks to Abram and says, Abram, I want you to know I'm going to do something extraordinary through you. I'm going to do something extraordinary in your life. To which Abram looks at him and says, God, that's great. But even if you did something extraordinary in my life, I have no family to pass it on to. But Abraham, but Abram said, verse 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, and the heir of my house is this kind of guy who's loosely related to me, who's just kind of associated with me, who I don't have a you know, direct connection to. God, even if you gave me everything, which had huge significance to them, was that I won't be able to give anything to my heir and to my children. And Abram said, verse 3, and reiterates, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. 
And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, pause. On the heels of this, the writer records a little detail, a little transaction that happens. That for us, in the middle of this question of how do I find myself in God's good graces, sets up from the beginning, from the founder of our faith, in fact, hundreds of years before God would give a law, Hundreds of years before God would say, this is how you should live. This is how you ought to live and how you ought not live. This is what you ought to do and what you ought not do. God says, here is how you find yourself in my good good graces. And he uses a word that isn't terribly common for us to use in everyday language. He uses this word called righteousness. The idea of righteousness is a right standing. A right standing. How do I find myself in a right standing with God? Which, again, is the central question of all religion. And so the writer records a transaction that happens in this. In verse 6. And he believed the Lord, he being Abraham, or Abram, believed the Lord. And he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. In other words... From the get-go, from the beginning, from the inception of God calling his people in his nation with the very first God. God said, here's here's what I want you to know. Here's the confines of how you find yourself in a right relationship with me. You believe me. And I know you're going to want to make it more complicated. And I know you're going to want to add tons of rules on top of it. I know you're going to want to add tons and tons of extra things, extra verses, extra you ought to memorize and you ought to attend and you ought not do that. And you ought to go, let me just tell you. The way that Abraham was counted righteous before there were even rules, before there was anything to do to please God, it was simple. The starting point in faith was a simple belief. To believe in and to trust God. And Abraham, with very little perhaps reason to believe God, chose to believe God. And he, in doing that, found himself in a right relationship with his and our Heavenly Father. But as many of you know the story, the nation of Israel would continually be wayward. They decide to live for God and go away from God. Decide to live for God and go away from God. Decide to live for God and go away from God. Until one day God sent the whole nation into exile, kind of putting the entire nation for about 70 years in timeout. And then when they came out of timeout, they disobeyed again. And at a time in history when perhaps God should have leaned out, God decided to do the opposite and leaned in and sent his son, who for our belief is that Jesus was the Messiah. He did fulfill the prophets. He did do incredible teachings. He did, you know, do a a whole ton of miracles where he would calm the storm and he would talk to the weather and he would heal the blind and he would feed the poor and he would touch and he would spend time with people who no one else would spend time with. And then he did what absolutely no one expected. He died. And everyone thought that he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its place of military and political prominence. And this leader died. And everyone abandoned until the dead guy rose 
from the grave. And as the people who followed him the most closely would go back and look at Nate and say, you know, in a sense, we missed it while he was here. And he said it over and over and over and over again. That this right standing with God has nothing to do with how you behave, but has everything to do with you placing your trust and your hope in the fact and in the reality that we at the core, in fact, we because of our decisions, are sinful. And Jesus died to take away from us what we couldn't take away from ourselves. (laughs) What's interesting is even though every religion looks at this story as part of their story, every religion has a tendency to divert from this story or to go away from this story. In Judaism, you know, it, it's, it's, it's you follow the Torah. It's in Judaism, it's that, you know, you, perhaps you're born into it or perhaps you follow it and at the end of the day, you follow enough and you're born enough and God kind of decides that you're good. Behavior, 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 behavior. And in, 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 in the Muslim faith and people who are of Islamic faith, it's the same thing. It's that, you know, a few hundred years after Jesus walked around, there was this guy um, who walked around named Muhammad. And Muhammad kind of put all the pieces together that one of uh, Abram's, uh, who would become Abraham's, you know, sons, traveled and kind of rested in this area and began what he would consider the Islamic faith. And the Islamic faith, it's, you know, to believe in, you know, Allah and his prophet Muhammad. And in conjunction with that, you do enough stuff that the kind of the scales weigh out at the end where, you know, the good outweighs the bad and that it's the will of Allah and that perhaps you get to you know, what would be considered a type of heaven. And Christians, let me just tell you, about five minutes after Jesus left the earth, started doing the exact same thing. Started saying, okay, you can believe in Jesus, you can have faith, you can believe in Jesus, you can have faith, but if you are going to have a starting point with God, you have to do all of this behavior. You have to do all of this, you know, religious rituals. You have to eat the right foods. You can't eat the wrong foods. You have to drink the right drinks. You can't drink the wrong drinks. You have to, you know, do all of the right behaviors. And if you've ever read the New Testament, you know that Paul spends an inordinate amount of time redefining the gospel because over and over and over and over again, we try to over, over, over complicate. That the starting point of faith starts with a simple belief. And believing God, and as we believe that God sent his son Jesus who rose from the dead. In fact, Paul summarizes it this way in Galatians chapter 3. We'll read this and we'll be done. Galatians chapter 3, after some people had, church, had, had, had kind of gone into the church, Galatia, and Paul's writing to redefine and say, man, let me just clarify this whole thing. Because again, we try to overcomplicate it. We try to make it about behavior, 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 behavior. Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Good person, good person, good person, good person. He says, are you so foolish, talking to the church of Galatia, having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, what you know began as a spiritual thing, what you knew began by an act of faith, an act of belief, now you're trying to prove yourself through the flesh. He said, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it wasn't vain? In other words, come on, did all that stuff that you went through because of your belief, was, was that just nothing? Was that all pointless? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and who works miracles among you do so by works of the law, in other words, by the way that you behave and the things that you do, or by hearing 
with faith. And draws back to Abraham and says, basically, look from the beginning. This was the setup. This was the context. This was the idea from the beginning. That just as Abram or Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness, know that, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not those who were born into it, not those who grew up in it, not those who were handed it, but those who took it by faith. In the scripture, foreseeing God, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, it's, it's, it's obvious and it's intuitive, but it's so easy to confuse and it's so easy to compound that the starting point of faith begins with faith. The starting point of faith begins with a simple step, not a crazy step, not how in the world could you believe that, but a simple step in faith to say, God, I don't know if I could ever become the person that you're calling me to be. God, I don't know if I could ever perform, I don't know if I could ever be as holy as the Christians I see, as the religious people I see, as the spiritual people I see, but I have a fundamental belief that you sent your son to the earth, that he died on the cross, and that this dead guy rose again, and I believe that's true, and in believing that, you find what many people all over the world have sought to find which is a right standing with God. As intuitive as it is, the starting point of faith is a simple step of faith that God instituted from the beginning that since the beginning we have tried to confound, we have tried to confuse, we have tried to put on top of. But the starting point of faith is a simple step of faith. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together. God, we thank you for preserving these documents. God, help anybody and everyone in here who's struggling with this idea of religion. Struggling with this idea of a relationship with God. To know that you never called us to perform. You never called us to behave. God, that you called us to believe. Believe in you. And believe in the one that you sent. That the core of our faith is a belief that you sent your son to die for us, to do what we couldn't do, and in response to that, we do nothing. But simply believe. And that belief is profound, and that belief is incredibly transformative. But help us, help us, help us, help us, please help us to take that first step of faith, which is to have a simple belief in the one that you sent. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.